We did it! We did it, y'all! We made it through 2018. This is the last Cosmic Dragon episode of 2018. This is episode 23, and I am your host, Sean Grigsby. Today, we're going to be talking to the queen of grimdark fantasy herself, Anna Smith Spark. Get ready for that in just a minute or two. I want to thank every single one of you listeners that support, like, share, hype up, pimp, all those cool verbs. Thank you for supporting Cosmic Dragon. I want to let you know that this podcast is uh, up for a nomination for a Hugo if you so choose to do that kind of thing, if you're a member of Worldcon. Uh, They have a category for best fan cast, and if you like this enough, I would love your nomination. I'd love your nomination for my books, too. Uh, If you've read them, if you like them, those are Smoke Eaters and Daughters of Forgotten Light. Those are the two books that I've had released in 2018. 2019's already looking good. I got Ash Kickers coming out July 2nd, which uh, I just realized is the same day that Chuck Wendig's new book, Wanderers, from Del Rey, I believe, comes out the same day. So (laughs) I would like you to go to the bookshop and uh, get both of those books uh, because I know I'm not as big as Chuck Wendig yet. Yet. Anyway, let's jump into our interview with Anna Smith-Spark. Kick it! Because I actually uh, used to read Slush and do reviews for Grimdark Magazine, so... Yeah, and then I kind of slipped away. (laughs) So, to let listeners know, we're speaking with Anna Smith-Spark. She is an Orbit author. Uh, this is Cosmic Dragon episode 23, and uh, the, the three books that you have uh, with Orbit, uh, the first two are already out. I'm, I'm assuming yes. the second one's out, yes? Yes. Okay, and they are The Court of Broken Knives. summer. It was out all summer. It was out when I saw you in the summer. Yeah, we, we <laughs> you are actually the rare guest who I've actually met in person. We met at yes. Worldcon. Yes. And I didn't even realize it was you when I met you. <laughs> <laughs> I just said, hey, this this other person here is wearing awesome shoes like myself. I need to say hello. And then I realized it was you. And I've been seeing your name uh, tossed around on Facebook and Twitter and things like that. Uh, and I was like, oh, it's it's you. So, yeah, that was, that was in August. Yes. Okay, so that's when The Tower of Living Dying came out. Yes. Around that same time. That's the second book. And the third one is called The House of Sacrifice. Yeah. Anna, what can you tell us about this series? Oh, it's um, it's very dark, um, very violent, grimdark fantasy, but with a lot of poetry in it. Um, it's a uh, lot of lot of descriptive language, a lot of very high flown poetic imagery. There's some actual poetry in there. That's some um, pastiche of. Uh, sort of dark age British poetry, some stuff, and then it's pastiche of homoerotic Persian love poetry. Um, it's um, it's kind of a bit like our Scott Baker, but with may- way more knob jokes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've got this lovely quote from Scott Lynch where he sort of talks about how he described it as absolute grand guignol. It's like absolutely, you know, it's um, it's like. Yeah, lots of kind of bad jokes and me just messing around with language and terrible puns and alliteration and just, um, yeah, I'm just completely going to town on 
battle scenes and scenes of violence and just a lot of it's describing how it would feel that's what I'm interested I'm not interested in the kind of very technical technicalities of fighting and kind of armor and moves and that kind of technical fight stuff the people like Christian Cameron do Miles Cameron does really really well but I'm interested in the kind of the emotional experience of violence and the emotional experience of being in these kind of epic heroic situations and it's intensely cynical as well I mean god I'm um, I'm living for Brexit I'm um, intensely <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely um, yeah informed by a, a deep political cynicism about everything ever the state of the world and the state of politics and but I'm also romantic I'm um, I'm a, at heart I'm a total romantic and it's got that romance in it I kind of it I sounds really, like it has everything in it <laughs> I like to think so but um, yeah I mean um, it probably hasn't got that much of a plot um, the, but people, I'm, I'm definitely a um, I'm interested in the language and the world and the people in the world I'm not I'm, it's not one of those kind of lots of reveals and lots of plot twists and that kind of desperately like what's going to happen what's going to happen so what's going to happen next who is who are these you know what's the big reveal what's the what are the secrets right it's, it's more character driven and, and yeah, so it's very it, it, kind of character driven and situation driven and language driven well that's wonderful uh, so it, it's definitely for people who love eloquent prose but also gore Yes, yes. It's, um, it's, yeah, I mean, the, the kind of, yeah, my huge influence as, on my, huge influences on my writing as a fantasy novelist thinker, probably. Um, Oscar Baker, obviously, who I, I worship. Um, M. John Harrison, who is absolutely, he's a British, sort of very cult fantasy novelist. His novel series, Viriconium, is an absolute untouchable masterpiece of kind of style and language and then actually the other huge influence on me is James Elroy the American noir writer who just writes violence like you just wouldn't believe it's 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 virtually unreadable it's completely impenetrable but it's just absolutely what the what it is like to be coked out of your mind in a mash <laughs> you know what he's, he's, he's using language to go beyond any kind of linguistic expression just to put you in that absolutely just insane situations that's my favorite kind of literature yes <laughs> hunter s thompson is 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 one of my uh my one of my favorite writers um i don't like him 100 percent as a person but <laughs> but but he, he has that sort of romantic kind of thing but it's funny you mentioned uh, being coked up in a room uh <laughs> that's the first thing i think of uh so it sounds wonderful and it, you can spoil it if you want but uh it, whatever scene that you'd like to discuss what would you say is the most violent or gory or dark uh scene from your books Oh goodness! Um, uh. So we—I mean, it opens with a two-page, essentially stream of consciousness monologue of an absolutely unnamed figure. He's—he's he's referred to as he. That's like, all you know is that you're dealing with a man who is in a battle and there's no, you know, there's no, I don't describe, there's no sense of who, what side we're on, what we're fighting about, what's going on. 
there's references to knives and swords so you can probably work out pretty quick okay this is high fantasy this isn't urban fantasy or this isn't kind of science fiction but apart from that and it's just writing you know he's just it's just writing about him fighting and some people have said some people have said they've actually they took the book back after about you know it's unreadable they can't they haven't been able to read beyond the first paragraph other people have said <laughs> they just could not put it down after the first paragraph and that that's what I use to kind of set the scene. That's absolutely, you know, that's me. That is me laying down a bit of a marker that kind of you you won't want to read this or you really won't want to read this. Um, but then, oh, I mean, the battle scene I had the most fun writing, I think, actually, was the, the big, of course, there's a big battle, the sort of the big battle scene in book two, The Tower of Living and Dying, which I just... Um, I, d- I kind of wanted to describe that. The, you know, this sort of cinematic experience when something like, you know, the, the great big climactic battle in the film of The Return of the King, that the yes. big end battle, or actually that kind of the, see, the battle that you see some of at the beginning of um, The Fellowship of the Ring, where the, the first battle against Sauron when the ring's cut off. Yeah, the big, huge, sprawling battles. Yes, mm-hmm. huge battle. And that kind of, you know, gods fighting, immortal ageless beings fighting, huge amounts of magic, absolutely cataclysmic. But I, I really want to describe the absolutely just the emotional impact of that. I wanted to talk describe not some kind of technical description of how a battle was going, but almost there's a kind of, there's a wonderful, wonderful bit in Tolstoy in War and Peace where Nicholas, the young, the young Count Nicholas, is in going into battle and he's, he's one of the hussars, he's this kind of dashing young aristocrat on his horse and he's in one of the battles against the French, against Napoleon, and he hasn't got a clue. He has absolutely no idea what's going on. It's told very closely from his perspective. And you get this kind of wonderful bit. He's galloping around on his horse going, hurrah, hurrah, hurrah. <laughs> There's some other people charging the other direction, sort of heading towards us. I wonder who they are. <laughs> the person riding in front of me is just... Well, my friend riding in front of me is just... Um, oh, he seems to have fallen off his horse. Gosh, what's going on? Now there's some smoke appearing. Oh, my goodness! The people charging at us are the enemy, and they're firing at us, and my friend has just been shot. And that kind of, you know, you have no idea what's going on. Tolstoy talks about this repeatedly. You have no idea what's going on. This is a vast, epic confrontation that's deciding, in this case, the future of Russia. And you have no idea what's going on. You're involved in it. And just that confusion and that chaos. And I wanted to write that. And I wanted to write about, you know, the vastness of it. I wanted to describe that kind of, that sense of absolute wonder and amazement that actually we all get from watching war films, from reading about violence, that kind of... That, you know, I mean, you know, there was that thing about the um, the Oscars. There was that joke about when they wanted to talk about, oh, we'll have to give Pan- Black Panther a special award because it can't possibly win Best Picture because it's a comic book and it's got black people in it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, make a special award for it. Kind of like, yeah, like black popular people like have a special award and like don't trouble us kind of white Yeah, people. kind of patronizing. Well, not even kind of. Yes. It was very patronizing. Yes, it's awful. But there was this lovely bit where someone said, well, what are we going to, well, what next? They're going to start handing out awards for um, best shit blowing up. Like, well, <laughs> why do we all go to cinema apart from like, Although I'd be interested in that award more than any other, I think. Yes. yes. <laughs> Everyone goes to the cinema. That's why we. That's why we play computer games. We want to see shit blowing up in fantastically exciting ways. And I wanted to write about that. I wanted to write about that. Just that 
what do we all want? We all want to see something absolutely amazing. And then what do we really all want? We want to see something absolutely amazing blow up. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that was, um, and that was that was just so much fun. That was just absolutely. I just, I just went completely OTT writing that. I was just. Um, I think some people don't get that it's the stuff I write about, and it get these reviews because you were saying like there are really ridiculously cartoonish levels of violence. Well, that's <laughs> they're meant to be. <laughs> cartoonish well, levels. yeah, it, it wasn't an accident. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just. No, read some just kind of the absolute insanity of just going I mean just how far can I take this how just how kind of how OTT can this all be and it was it's just it's just a fantastic fun to write and people people seem to think it's intensely enjoyable and kind of in a slightly weird kind of way to read as well so so yeah yeah, I, I, yeah. that's totally my thing as well and uh, with, with my own novel daughters of forgotten light it's extremely violent every review is saying it's violent (laughs) you know just to let people know but you still get or i still get reviews where well first of all on amazon it's completely split people either absolutely love it or they despise the hell out of it and which is very interesting to me because i actually kind of set out to do that that exact <laughs> was to piss off half the people and 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 really focus on the people who who love that sort of thing um but i had one recent review say i don't want to see women backstab each other and 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 fight to survive and i said what do you like to read exactly <laughs> what did you think you were getting into so have you had any reviews or, or, or things like that where it's just like this isn't mary poppins i was writing and you should have kind of gathered that oh yeah no um masses i mean yeah similarly i um all my ratings and reviews on things are massively split between um kind of one star oh my god this is unreadable this woman cannot write she cannot punctuate she um she just what the hell there are whole paragraphs which don't appear to have any of any of the basic laws of punctuation this is just what the hell um and then i have people saying i'm the most important fancy novelist in the last 10 years and there doesn't actually seem to be that much of a kind of <laughs> which, is, which is kind of nice i mean i honestly there's this guy posted a review saying he'd taken my book back to the bookshop after he'd read the first two paragraphs or something I mean, I don't take something back to the shop if it's actually broken. Right. Like, you know, buy something and I get it home and it's broken. I'm like, well, can I be bothered? Can I be bothered? Right. I mean, this guy <laughs> all the way with this. But I mean, personally, I think it might have, might have been a good idea to read, like, two pages before we bought it. But anyway. At but, least um, donate it to the library or yeah, something. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I mean, I get that this very, very kind of – it's – I wouldn't say no, I wrote it to be loved and hated. I, d- I didn't write it to be a fancy novel. I didn't write it to be a novel. I just started writing and what came out was The Court of Broken Knives. I've talked about this before. I just, I didn't plan it. It wasn't conceived of I am going to write a novel and I'm going to write in this particular way. It just happened. And the first time I wrote, a, wrote, one, I wrote the battle scene and really kind of discovered what I could do with language in writing that kind of extreme emotional, heightened emotional experience and kind of writing, just absolutely trying to really, really delve into something really quite sort of really unpleasant. It, um, it was a quite an astonishing experience. I had no idea that where this kind of stuff came from and it was amazing, incredible experience. Um, but yeah, I mean, I didn't, 
but I'm perfectly happy that a lot of that some people don't like it. The fact that other <laughs> so I'm happy that lots of people really really like it, but um, I don't. I'm not writing. Obviously, it's great. I want lots of people to like it. I want people to love it and buy it, and I want to be make the books a success. But you know, I'm not writing in sort of. I want to make this very mainstream. I want to make this. What what will appeal to people? What can I do that will make this book saleable? I'm writing. I am like bearing my soul completely. To sound really pretentious, I'm absolutely. The the world I've created is, I think, my subconscious. I didn't build it. It just. It was already there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was already there. Yeah, I mean, I didn't world build. I don't world build at all. Everything is just comes out, and it's just it's everything I love and all my feelings about things. Um, Maris and Thalia, the two main characters, are kind of, and Orhan as well, actually, are are basically, I think, different parts of me. Maris and Thalia, I think, are probably my animus and my anima. Orhan is me as the kind of, I'm a civil servant. Orhan is me dealing with my own political experiences. And it, that's what it comes from, and the fact that, obviously, I want people to love it, but I want people to love it for the prose. I want people to love it because it's complicated and challenging and viscerally unpleasant and full of sick humor and i know that that is possibly not (laughs) it's not everybody's thing yes it's not everybody's thing and i'm perfectly happy with that and in fact you know when i get the reviews that kind of say things like i don't want to read violent books like well fine i don't want to read you know there are many books i don't want to read i just don't read them i don't quite know that whole kind of notion of reviewing things on goodreads with that kind of Knowing it wasn't for you and, yes. and attempting to make it not something for someone else. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what's the point? You know, that's like, there are lots of things. Reviews are for, reviews on websites like that are for things like, this kettle promises to boil water quicker than most kettles. It doesn't. This device, prom- this, this pair of straighteners promises to give you straighter, nicer hair than you've ever, than you've ever had before. They don't. Right. This device is to shop your shoes ever being uncomfortable. to stop you having that pain of wearing stilettos for four hours on the dance floor. It doesn't. Don't buy it. That's what negative reviews are for. Therefore, that kind of, look, chaps, this thing is lying. I mean, no, how can a book ever be lying? A book is so utterly subjective. <laughs> it's it's, it's in itself a lie. <laughs> yes, it's in its, yeah. I mean, a book is, either you love a book or you don't like it. It's like going on a website and saying, I don't like chocolate cake, so this chocolate cake is horrible. I mean... What's what's the point? But yeah, but now we've had some appalling reviews. Absolutely, <laughs> it's all. It almost becomes a game to, <clears throat> among authors to see who has the worst review or the funniest worst review, and uh, it's yeah. I don't understand. They have m- probably more time on their hands than I certainly do, um, and I don't know if it's just because I'm an author as well. But if I don't like a book, I don't say anything about it. <laughs> Just don't see the point. The joy of reviewing books and reading books is that joy of telling someone, this is a book I love and I want you to read it because you'll love it. Or even this is a book I didn't pick you like, I like, but I think you'll love it because it's not for me, but I think it's really for you. It's that making someone happy of, here's something that is great. Right. And I don't quite know what the point of, here's something that I'm going to tell you about something that you won't like, that I don't think you'll like. Or, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I can't stand it reviews. Yeah, we, <laughs> millions of really bad Goodreads reviews now. But, um. <laughs> well, talking about The Court of Broken Knives, that was the first book of this uh, series. Uh, how did that come about? Uh, well, first of all, let me ask, is how many novels had you written before it? 
I hadn't written any, I hadn't written a single novel before. It was, so this was um, your first first novel right out of the gate. Yes. Wow. How how did you come to uh, have Orbit publish it? Uh, well, see, I well, I wrote all the time when I was a child. I wrote all the time when I was a child. I wrote loads of short stories and poems, and and when I was a late teenager, I wrote masses of. Um, comic book scripts but the point was to read them as the scripts the point it was they were kind of like the, the descriptions of what was happening and the kind of and the page layout the kind of structuring of it was part of part of the the kind of text of the whole thing and they kind of i wrote these like they were um yeah they were terribly arty torture porn graphic novel scripts that were never meant to be illustrated um <laughs> <laughs> and then i stopped writing completely when i was in my about 20 and I didn't write again until I wrote The Court of Broken Knives so that was over 10 years um, and I kind of felt really I'd always wanted to be a writer all the, it's the only thing I'd actually I'd always wanted to be an art writer or an archaeologist they were the only two things I ever wanted to do um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but, I mean my, my dad's a poet most of it, a lot of his friends are writers um, it's not like I didn't I grew up surrounded by people who were writing and making and sort of writers and artists. It wasn't like kind of um, I didn't have an exposure to that kind of world, but I just kind of felt, I felt almost really really depressed that all these people I knew were writers and artists and and then I knew lots of people in bands and um, just this kind of you know people who were writing, writing making music, writing songs, performing, and I felt really really depressed that I wasn't doing any of that and I could. Not that even that I wasn't, but I felt that I couldn't. I almost felt like if I started writing, the heavens would open and gods would appear laughing at me or something, you know, just that kind of, that absolute sense that if I started writing, the whole world would sort of point and laugh. Mm. And then, um, actually, I was from watching Game of Thrones. It was the Game of Thrones soundtrack, and there's something about that soundtrack, and reading about it, and everyone being obsessed with it, and talking, my mum got completely obsessed with it, and discussing her about it, discussing about it with her a lot, um, and my mum is also, my mum, and watching the Lord of the Rings, my mum went through this thing where she'd watched the Lord of the Rings films so many times, that um, I think she knows most of the script off by heart, my dad's, my parents are both massive fantasy fans as well. Um, oh, wonderful. Yes, and it just became, yeah, my dad read me and sang me and sort of you know in, performed to me the entire of the Lord of the Rings when I was a child he sort of sang all the songs and he gave all the different um, the dwarves and the elves different accents and he 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 didn't read just read it he'd absolutely just kind of performed it for me just in my bedroom at night before I went to bed and it was amazing but yeah so um, I was just sort of surrounded by people talking about this genre that I loved and I just started writing one day, um, and what I wrote became chapter, what is now chapter two of Broken Knives. Um, I didn't have a clue. I had this image, a really clear image in my head. There was a desert, and there were men in the desert, and it's very clear there were men. There were a group of men in the desert, and there was violence. And I started writing that. I didn't know who these people were. I didn't know where they were. I didn't know what was happening. And then before I knew it, I found myself, um, slight spoiler alert for the first 10 pages of the book, found myself writing the words, um, the dragon was on them before they'd had a chance to draw their swords. And suddenly there was a dragon there. Nice. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the, dra just, the dragon just sort of just had to appear. And then this, this amazing process over the next year where this world just 
emerged in front of me. Um, I mean, the big criticism that's made of the Court of Broken Knives is it hasn't got a particularly structured plot. It kind of starts, and people people go on a journey, and they end the journey ends. It doesn't have that kind of coherent plot that's um sort of really structured plot. Oh, God, my mobile phone is running. I should not. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so it. But I was discovering who these people were. I didn't have a clue who these people were. I didn't have a clue where they were or what they were doing. They, I knew that they were they were going towards a city. That became very clear very quickly. They were heading towards a city. And the city was every fantasy city in every kind of romantic, poetic, insane, orientalist vision of a fantastical city that I've ever read, which is kind of... I've, I've read a huge amount of that sort of travel writing, that very orientalist travel writing about going to the east and the Silk Road and Samarkand and that... Um, and me, Flecker's amazing poem, the, the Golden Journey to Samarkand, which is actually really about the, the soul and the kind of the progress of life, to the soul towards God. But the city is this kind of Yeats's Byzantium, you know, all those absurd Western European fantasies of this amazing godlike city yes. in the distance, somewhere in the desert. And so, you know, obviously I had to write that because that's another of the things that's obsessed me all my life. And then when we got to the city and other things started happening and one of the characters revealed himself to me in interesting ways. And in a year I had this novel, well, this kind of slightly strange kind of amazing journey of discovery I'd had. And um, yeah, I got um, an agent who was the same agent as Mark Lawrence's agent. And oh, nice. Was, yes, uh, I got... Um, Ian Drury... Yeah, Drury, yes. Um, overnight, it was completely bizarre. Um, I never even formally submitted to him, actually. I um, I sort of um, sent in a query to his agency. He got back to me, and within, I think, something like two or three days, I was signed with them. Um, and then the next thing I know, I've got major international book deals with Harper Voyager in the UK, and always in the US. And That's fantastic. It was... Um, I still can't believe it, to be honest. I still regularly, um, I still regularly kind of feel this is some kind of dying fantasy of mine or something, you know. Um, <laughs> kind of, I'm actually on my, you know, this, is, this cannot be true. This just cannot be true. I'm somewhere in a coma dying and all of this is my kind of, my pathetic wish fulfillment dream in the last moments of my life or something. This cannot be true. <laughs> All the DMT is flowing through your brain yes, as you yes. cease to exist. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this just cannot this cannot be real my agent sometimes says to me still you can't believe this can you because it's I just you know this is beyond anything I'd ever dreamt of as a child and everything I'd ever dreamt of as a child this is the only thing I'd ever wanted out of life and it it just happened virtually kind of painlessly I mean I'm now kind of there's going to be some massive karma comeback I just you know, this, it cannot be this easy. There's going to be some. It was so easy getting this first book deal. I just everything is just going to go horribly wrong from now on, or something. Because it no. just <laughs> <laughs> no. You know, I mean, you know, I cannot. I I cannot believe it. I just still cannot. Absolutely cannot believe it. I just, it's um, very surreal. Yeah. I was in. Yeah, I mean, I was in a bookshop just for shopping the other day, and um, I mean, obviously, do you do that thing every time you go in the science fiction and fantasy section? You're like. 
they're stuck on my book. They might oh, all, book. Every, yeah, that's the first thing yeah. I think of. I don't go in yeah. there for any specific reason <laughs> other than... <laughs> But of course, okay, they won't have it. Of course they won't have it. They won't have it. And then, I mean, I was in Foils, which is this incredibly prestigious UK bookshop, you know, it's the, and obviously you have it because it's a big bookshop, you know, it's got this massive, um, it's, you know, it's got a massive science fiction and fantasy section. It should have all the books that have been, pub- you know, all the books that have been published by the big five this year, but still it's like, of course they're not going to have it. Of course they're not going to have it. And then it's like, oh my God, they've got there it. There it is. Oh my God, there it is. Like, oh my God. And, it still kind of feels like that's not right. That's not right. That shouldn't be there. That, like that shouldn't be there. Not with those other books. That someone's going to come take it away in a minute and say like it was a mistake or something. I mean that that can't be there. <laughs> if I blink, it's going to disappear again because I just I do, I can't I just cannot believe this happened. But yeah, that's, I mean, that's <laughs> awesome. That it yeah it sounds it sounds it was, a lot quicker than what I had to deal with. <laughs> it is. I mean, it is the only. Writing is the only thing I'm good at, basically. And people always say, oh, don't be stupid, don't be ridiculous. I'm sure you're not good at many things. But um, I'm actually, I, I have Asperger's syndrome. Mm-hmm. I'm also dyslexic and dyspraxic. And I've got mental health issues. I mean, my life other than writing has not exactly been a um, bed of roses. And I, I can't drive. Um, I'm rub- I, My Asperger's is, like, every every aspect of an office situation triggers my, is kind of, negative for my Asperger's I'm hypersensitive to those kind of big strip lights I can't cope with open plan offices I can't cope with holding you know, hierarchies of command and oh yeah me neither you know, all that <laughs> well this person's job title might be this but actually you know you that's the person you need to talk to and the politics of it you know that kind of office politics Red tape, yeah yeah all of that and that kind of well strategically we might think we want to do this but actually we'd position it like that you know all of that stuff I'm rubbish at I'm stuck in a really low-level office job in the civil service, which I'm never going to get promoted out of because I'm rubbish at it. Um, if I didn't have my book, I'd have a pretty crappy life, actually. Um, <laughs> yeah, I understand that completely. <laughs> completely. I mean, you know, I, I, if I bake a cake, I burn it. If I cook the dinner, it's soggy pasta and undercooked rice and burnt vegetables and steak that's kind of black and um but you write a novel and it gets published (laughs) yeah i write a novel and it gets published yeah that's um yeah it's (laughs) that's awesome and you know you you saying you're talking about the desert scene it reminds me of uh my own uh writing experience when i wrote smoke eaters uh about firefighters versus dragons the first thing i saw was this ashen wasteland and this ghost traveling over the wasteland and the thing that i appreciate about what you said in in something i try to get across to other writers is that imagination it is almost if not more important than any technical aspect of a book um, because I think a lot of writers, so many times, they focus on the technicality. They read books on on uh, formatting paragraphs and and plot structure and the hero's journey and things like that. But they don't rely on their own imagination, and I think that's so important to do. Yeah, no, I mean, I just kind of, I mean, I I can see it all. I kind of know. I know exactly how it all works. I know kind of. I can kind of see exactly how the whole book works and the whole structure of it. I don't need particularly to think about that kind of technical aspect at all. You know, I mean, it, for me, it is a kind of really... I just, 
I just write it and it comes. It's um, and I know like, the structure comes and things. Yeah, it's all very to me. It's all very organic because it's all part of the whole thing. Yeah, you just trust yourself and it flows. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes. That, that's how I work as well. So I'm gl- I'm yes. glad I'm not the only one because I thought I was <laughs> doing it wrong. Because <laughs> I no talk. There's no right or wrong way of doing any of this. There's um, I mean, I just say to people, just write. My dad has this wonderful poster up on his wall in his study, and it says, you must write as if your life depends on it. And it's that kind of, right, just write. People sort of muck around talking about, oh, you need to learn, you know, you need to learn, or there are ways of doing it. There's awful, you know, people kind of giving tips on what what's good or bad prose. Well, I mean, good prose is prose that says something to you or moves you in some way. Right. Bad prose is prose that, doesn't quite ring true to you that's there's no good or bad prose i've read you know there are novelists i love who write incredibly over flower incredibly flowery and purpled perfumed you know i mean um elizabeth smarts by grand central station i sat down and wept which is um it's an absurdly over the top flowery it's it's a woman who is um, she's basically the third party in she's a she's someone's mistress basically she's um, so she's kind of this so sort of constantly torn because she's um, she knows that the man she passionately loves is married to another woman and she knows how much harm she's causing to this other woman and it's just this incredibly flowery overflown kind of like the most absurdly over the top love letter and what someone might ever write and it's absurdly over the top and it's you know it's adjectives piled upon adjective piled upon adjective piled upon adjective and it's just mind-blowingly beautiful but then you have Cormac McCarthy who writes it's very sparse very simple very kind of very clean sparse prose and that's just mind-blowingly beautiful and then you have someone like Elroy who's writing um for White Jazz, he was um, his novel White Jazz, the fourth novel in his L.A. Noir Quartet. He, um, the book was 100,000 words too long, in his editor's opinion. And anyone else would have edited out, you know, one or two big subplots. He edited out 100,000 words of things like said and the and uh and and. Wow. And, you know, little words that don't actually add anything. You know, you don't need... Just yes, filler words, yeah. No, she agreed. Let's do it then, he said. You don't need that, he said, she said. You don't need a lot of that stuff. It Strictly, strictly speaking, you don't need those things, except, of course, you do, because it just makes no sense if you don't have them, but he took them all out. <laughs> and White Jazz is essentially unreadable. He just has these little, every now and then he has to drop in a paragraph and he basically tells you what has happened. <laughs> just... You know, it is absolutely in the mind of this kind of deeply fucked up petty criminal. And you're just absolutely in his mind in his violence. And you don't have a clue what's going on. But he probably doesn't have a clue what's going on either. Is he's basically the kind of... it. Again, you know, it's using language to go beyond language. And that is incredible and amazing and mind-blowingly wonderful and agonisingly painful to read but so rewarding and then you have someone like um, Brandon Sanderson who is I don't I'm a particular fan of Brandon Sanderson but you know he's got this very very simple 
very clean, simple prose, very clear, and he tells you a ripping story. And that's wonderful. There is no right or wrong way to do this. There's no such thing as a good book or a bad book. There's just books that you like or you don't look, and there are no rules. I mean, there are just, you do it, and it's, if it works, It's art, yeah. It's, if it works, either you it like works. it, you don't. Yes, and if it works, you know, there are lots of people who try and write like Brandon Sanson, and it's terrible. Yes. But Brandon Sanson, what he does, is brilliant. What he does is absolute, you know, he's brilliant. Loads of people absolutely love it. His books are fun and exciting and keep you up all night desperately wanting to read what happens next. There are loads of people who try and write incredibly complex, torturous, postmodernist, in purple prose. And it's a horrible car crash. Look at your eyes. Yeah. It's, there are no rules. There are no, you know, there's no way of doing it. There's just your way. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, I'm afraid it doesn't. Mm. Well, hey, while we got time, uh, let, let's talk about this project you're working on with my agency brother and good friend, Michael R. Fletcher with Grimdark Magazine. Oh, see, Michael R. Fletcher is now my agency brother. Did he leave? He, he, did, didn't, he, he didn't even tell me that. Oh, maybe I'm supposed to tell. Maybe that's not supposed to be public knowledge. Whoops. Oh well, I'll I'll edit it out if so. <laughs> yeah, no, be I'll ask him. Yeah, he used to be with uh, Moss Agency, uh, uh, with Cameron McClure, and and I guess so. Now he's with uh, Ian. He's with Ian as well now. Yeah, he's okay. Um, yes. Well, what can you tell us about the project? Yeah, no, I mean, um, Mike Fletcher and I are really good mates, basically, because when Beyond Redemption came out, I read it. And I was just overcome with how brilliant it is and how, um, I mean, Mike just goes further than I'd possibly have thought, you know, I wouldn't dare. Um, yeah. He's just, he's a, the man's a genius. He's a totally, he's just, he, again, he's massively underrated because he's not for everyone. He is certainly probably a bit of a cult. He is definitely, he deserves massive cult status. He is not for everyone. He has made some people vomit, I think. But, wow. um, <laughs> I love yeah, Beyond Redemption. I loved it. it. Um, yeah, no, I love his books. But anyway, but when Beyond Redemption came out and I read it, I basically just hurled myself at him at Facebook and forced him to be my best mate because um, <laughs> he just, we think in very similar ways. And um, But yeah, but um, Adrian Collins at Grimdark Magazine has commissioned the two of us to write, co-author a special series for a current book will first be only be available for Patreon subscribers Screamed Up Magazine oh, which is nice. me and kind of playing um, we're basically playing a version of consequence, kind of form of consequences where one of us writes a chapter from one point of one perspective and then the next one picks up from a different character's perspective and then we wrote one chapter where we were writing we were interweaving two different perspectives um, within the same chapter and we're um, we're just we haven't really I mean we haven't we haven't planned that much, which means that we're having to do a huge amount of editing because both of us are just kind of just charge off and write and just do it right and just let the muse flow and it's just going to come out <laughs> and realising that it is completely incoherent with um, like what the last one of us has written and what the next one is going to write because we're both just kind of like... And at one point we were both like, hey, you know what, maybe if we read the episode that we're writing... To, maybe if we reread the episode that we're writing straight to carry on from before we write... Do you think that might be a good idea? And then maybe if we read all the episodes together, do you think, gosh, maybe we should do that sometime? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, we're just, and again, I mean, we're just, um, it's for Grimdark Magazine. People who read Grimdark Magazine know what me and Fletch do. A lot of the people there will be on the Grimdark Writers and Readers Facebook group and they will know the way me and Fletch interact. 
and we are having so much fun we are just um i did say to adrian at one point look if this just turns into some kind of insane how far can too far go complete just the two of us just doing some kind of the equivalent of some kind of 20 minute extreme metal guitar solo thing just like (laughs) stage yeah yeah that's my jam (laughs) But oh god, we're having so much fun. We're having so much, so much fun with it, and um, we're just—it's not in either of the worlds that we've created. We've just kind of set ourselves some little parameters. Um, it's called "In the Shadow of Their Dying," which I think probably sort of sums up both me and a lot of me and Fletcher's kind of stuff, stuff we write, and we're just having so much fun with it. And it should be hitting Patreon subscribers fairly soon, I think. Nice. Yes. That sounds awesome. It is. It's been a lot of fun. Well, Anna, we're going to wrap things up. Uh, I want to let everyone know, of course, that uh, we, we just talked about the Grimdark magazine project, but the, the Court of Broken Knives and the Tower of Living and Dying are already out. When can we expect the House of Sacrifice to release? House of Sacrifice will be out next summer. I've just... Um, I rewrote the ending to make it even bigger um and it's just sort of being it's in the editing process at the moment and it will be out next summer so yeah so house of so course broken knives but one came out 2017 summer 2017 tower of living and dying book two came out this year 2018 uh, okay so one every year i got you one every year yeah so um yeah which is kind of um yeah so it means i'm writing all the time and then um I've already done, I've started writing book one for series two and I shall have to hope and pray and sacrifice the dark gods that that gets picked up by someone and gets published. Awesome. Anna, yes. we appreciate you coming on the show. Everybody go grab the books. 